0: Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is now in theaters and I've got my spoiler-filled thoughts right now. Hello everybody, I'm Dan Merle and welcome to my spoiler review of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. That's right, I am getting into full spoilery details. If you wanna know what I thought of the film without any spoilers, I did do a spoiler-free review, you can find a little card up in the corner that'll take you there, but I want to be very clear that from here on out, I will be going into plot details about Ant-Man and the Watts, Quantumania, what I liked, what I didn't like, what I think it means for Marvel, there's a lot to get into, so let's get into it. It's been very interesting to watch the reaction to this film critically because I was able to get my review out at the embargo, which means that I had no idea what people were thinking about the movie before my review went out. Not that that influences what I think about a movie in any way, but sometimes if I have to wait a day or two, you know, go on Thursday night or something, I'll have a vague idea of what critical reaction is. And I honestly didn't know what to expect. I didn't really think it would be as, well, I'm not going to say negative. It's mixed is what the reaction is. If you go on Rotten Tomatoes, the average score for the movie, I think is like a 5.4, but the tomato meter says like 48%, which has a lot of people thinking like, oh, critics hate Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. They really don't. Critics are mostly mixed on it. I was very mixed on the film. I happen to list positive myself. If I listed my review on Rotten Tomatoes, which I haven't yet, it would be a fresh rating, but I understand people that were right in the middle and maybe tipped the other way. That binary fresh rotten thing, and I've said it so many times here on this channel and back when I was working at other channels as well, is really, I think kind of hurting the discourse around film criticism and skewing what film criticism is and what its intention is and even the opinions of critics because you look at the 40-something percent that Ant-Man and the Wasp has right now on Rotten Tomatoes and yeah, you think that critics hated the movie but when you look at that average score it is very much a movie that critics are right in the middle on and then of course people go out and see it and they disagree with the review and they say that all critics are snobs and blah, blah, blah. I hate this audience versus critics narrative that gets drawn every time there's a disagreement on movies and sometimes I'm on one side and sometimes on the other, it's just exhausting. And the fact that we have a binary system that is the main expression of critical feeling and critical thought is not helping. But really I am somewhat surprised at the number of critics that did tend to go negative rather than positive because it is a very mixed bag of a movie in my opinion. It was a movie where I had some things that I really liked which we'll talk about. It is a movie that had some things which I really didn't like, which I'll talk about, and those are obviously easier to talk more about. So let's just jump into it and let's start with the thing that I liked the most about Quantumania and that I think most people do as well, and that is Kang the Conqueror, played by Jonathan Majors. I actually had to go back and try to reconstruct the backstory because it had been a while since I had seen the season finale of Loki, but I think I've kind of got it figured out because we first met Jonathan Majors in Loki season one, he's he who remains and he is is the guy, the Kang or whatever you wanna call him, that originally discovered the multiverse and he went and saw that the the whole timeline was going to be destroyed by all of these Kangs fighting each other, and so he created the TVA to basically keep one timeline going in order to save the world, and then he got killed, and the timeline's all branched, and created the multiverse, and this is how we got to where we are now. So this is an interesting payoff to what we saw at the end of Loki, which is that in killing that variant, he who remains, and creating the multiverse, Loki and Sylvie, really, I guess Sylvie's the one that killed him, put us where we are right now. And so I hope that we tie back to that in Loki season two. This is the kind of synergy with movies and TV that I think Marvel kind of had in mind, but we haven't really seen that much so far. And I mentioned Jonathan Majors, I really loved him in this part. And and I loved what he brought to the role, which is that the, he has this very kind of quiet, restrained, almost statesman-like facade, and yet, you can see it crack, and then the rage just comes boiling out. It's a very manipulative thing. He can really kind of use that to try to gain your sympathies. But when he's done with you, he is done with you. And I think that he played both of these different notes pretty well when he says, hello, Jellybean, uh, to uh, Hope. It kind of reminded me of Killmonger saying, hey, Auntie, in Black Panther. It's just a way to sort of show that you have more knowledge about these people than they anticipated. It's almost kind of a power play. What the future holds in store for Jonathan Majors is a big question and one that I'll talk about at length in just a couple of minutes, but I like him as an actor, and no matter what they decide to do with this character, I have supreme confidence in his ability to do what is asked of him, and the question is, are they going to ask of him things that work well for the story? But I, I will use this forum because this is a bit of a bigger draw video uh, than my Sundance Film Festival recap. Jonathan Majors is the lead in a movie called Magazine Dreams, which was actually just acquired, I think this past week by Searchlight, Out of Sundance, and he is phenomenal in that movie. I think that he should be considered this time next year when we're talking awards time. It is an incredible performance. If you liked what you saw of Jonathan Majors in this film and you want to see more of him, then keep your eye out for Magazine Dreams because it'll probably be on a somewhat limited basis at least for a while. Jonathan Majors, one of the best performances I've seen in a very long time in that film, so stay tuned for that. One thing that I think this movie works well when we look in conjunction with Loki is that this variant of Kang, and I'm gonna call them Kangs, whether or not they end up calling themselves Kang, it's the Kang dynasty, so this variant of Kang kind of had a similar idea to He Who Remains from Loki, which is that he went to the end of time and he saw what was going to happen, but instead of creating the TVA, he decided to go and destroy all of these different timelines and whatever in order to kind of maintain order. It's kind of the same goal, As the other variant that we met of Kang, it's just that his end was much more violent in a way, although He Who Remains was also just completely annihilating timelines, just kind of institutionally, but here, just the idea that he has been conquering worlds, conquering entire universes and killing trillions of people, killing variant versions of the Avengers for who knows how long, that's such a rich backstory and I hope that they delve more into that, I hope it's not all left off screen. And it makes him a complicated character. He's not just a guy who wants to kill people because he likes killing people. It's all in the name of quote unquote protecting the multiverse. But Janet sort of brings it up at the end that, like, but, but it's not really about protecting the multiverse at this point. You were obviously deemed a threat by the other variants of yourself and you were exiled here, and now you just want to kill them and you don't care about any of the collateral damage. And again, that makes this an interesting character, this variant of Kang, Kang the Conqueror, an interesting character. So there was a lot to dig into, and I wish that the movie had dug into it even more. I really loved his performance, and I thought the character was pretty well layered and pretty well established. I also love that he communicated with the citizens of the Quantum Realm in the exact same way that Franklin Langella's Skeletor communicated with Eternia in the Masters of the Universe movie. Let this be my first decree. Those who do not pledge themselves to me shall be destroyed. However, there's one big misgiving I have about Kang, or at least this version of Kang coming out of the film, which is that in the first post-credits tag, the uh, Council of Kangs, as I'm calling them, you can definitely see the Rick and Morty influences there, uh, the, the assemblage of Kangs, the three that we meet that are talking to each other, say that he's dead that the exile is dead, but now they're gonna come after our world because now they see that we are beginning to understand the multiverse and we're a threat to Kang, so they're gonna come and wipe us out and it seems like that's where they're setting up. But I liked this Kang. I loved his specific story and the idea of, you know, where he came from and I wanted to know more about him. And so really this leaves open two possibilities. One is that he's not really dead. The death fake-out that Marvel has done so many times. This character's dead, whoop, no they're not. This character's dead, whoop, no they're not. I understand it's a comic book thing. But comics and movies are not the same medium. And I think narratively, when you're talking about movies, you can only use the same plot device so many times before it really starts to become boring, And, and it's almost like you're cheating. But I think that's preferable to the other option, which is that Kang the Conqueror, as we meet him in this movie, is actually dead because in my mind that means Marvel has now twice over introduced us to this character, brought Jonathan Majors into a series or a movie, and established who they are, what their backstory is, and then immediately killed them. I really want a version of this villain for me to sort of hang my hat on and to get invested in and to track across multiple movies. I mean, we had two versions of Thanos, but really that last version was only in Avengers Endgame and he was informed by what happened to the Thanos that we had tracked for many years previous. Mainly my concern is that they did spend so much time with this version of Kang and his motivations in this past. If he's really gone, then that kind of discounts a lot of this movie for me because then it's like, what's the point? Because it feels like, well, we're right back where we were at the beginning of the movie, as far as knowing that Kang is a big threat to the MCU, but not that Kang, and not the one that came before it, but you know, the Kangs that you're going to see later on. Stay tuned. Go see the next movie, watch the next show. We'll show you the Kangs you should really be worried about. That that hits me the wrong way. That just doesn't seem like smart storytelling. So whichever way they go with this, I'm going to be somewhat annoyed, but I do kind of, I guess, hope that they do the death fake out thing again, because I want to see this version of Kang the Conqueror. I like this version. So let's talk a little bit about the quantum realm and Janet's role in the realm and in the movie and something else that I kind of... I was lucky enough to see this movie twice. And so I like when I'm able to do that because I go back the second time. I kind of know what's happening. I can bring a little notebook and take notes. I don't like taking notes the first time I see a movie because I think it distracts me from the immersion of actually being in the movie. But I went yesterday sort of with an eye for a couple of questions I had coming out of my first viewing. And one of them is the premise of the movie. And, and it's something that I think is... It's a narrative conceit, but I think that you could have come up with a smarter way around it, which is that the entire movie basically is predicated on the idea that number one Janet had all of these adventures in the quantum realm that we didn't know about and number two that she never told anybody about what happened down there. And they try to deal with it in the movie. They say, well, why didn't you ever mention Kang? And she says, the the memories are painful and I just wanted to forget them. And, And I understand that. But at a bare minimum, you would think that any reasonable or responsible person, especially a scientist like Janet, who's working in a family of scientists, would say, listen, I don't want to get into it because some really bad stuff happened down there. But it is very important that you never send a signal down to the quantum realm because she knows the consequence of that is literally bringing out somebody who will destroy every version of every universe in the world. You don't have to have her spill her guts about everything that happened down there because I get it that it's painful. But it is hard for me to believe that she wouldn't have at least said, hey, don't mess with the quantum realm, even though I was messing with the quantum realm with all of you at the end of Ant-Man and the Wasp and sending Scott Lang down there to go get quantum healing particles. I guess that was acceptable messing with the quantum realm. But you would think she would have at least said, just don't, don't, just stay away. We're done with the quantum realm. And the reason I bring it up is that, you know, when you're starting from scratch with a movie, you can structure it really any way that you want. I mean, I'm sure Marvel had some things that they're like, this has to be in the movie, but you can write the story however you want. And this seemed like kind of a cheap way to get it so that, you know, oh, yeah, no, they never knew about Kang because, uh, you know, Janet never mentioned it. I don't know. It doesn't really sit right with me. Plus, I also have a hard time kind of mixing it with the previous films, which is that she was apparently down in this part of the quantum realm that, like, nobody's ever seen and it has life and Hank Pym has never heard of it, but he at least went down somewhere around there to get her. And so let's say, like, okay, well, you know, she kind of went away from where she was because she didn't want to get caught by Kang or whatever. You can kind of justify that a little bit. But also, the entire thing about Ant-Man and the Wasp was that she was sending a signal up to them in order for them to locate her which means that you would have to think that they were sending a signal back down to her maybe or maybe they weren't maybe that's what the whole medium thing with scott was but anyway she was definitely sending signals from the quantum realm up to the earth tracking the signal using subatomic frequencies between 0.2 and 0.9. and again you would think well if she was so devoted to kang never getting out would she even take that chance, you kind of have to squint at it and close one eye and look at it from this angle for it all to make sense. And it does bring the question up again of like, well, yes, you can justify it a little bit, but also why set this story up in a way that seems to conflict with other movies or that you have to have these kind of complicated explanations when you really just need to have Kang is in the quantum realm, they get pulled into the quantum realm and the other stuff you can kind of riff around a little bit more. So that for me is from a writing angle where I'm like, "Um, I wish they put a little more time and care into this story. I will say that Michelle Pfeiffer remains a great choice for the role of Janet. And I was glad that there was so much of her in this movie. In many ways, she is kind of the dominant of uh Janet and Hank in this film. And she has great chemistry with Michael Douglas and the fact that Janet kind of takes the lead and Scott and Cassie take the lead in the movie allowed Michael Douglas to kind of hang back and almost be along for the ride. And I love the humor that they gave to Hank in this movie. And of course, he's instrumental to the to the solution uh, at the end, the solution to their problem. But I also like the fact that he could just kind of be like, oh, that guy looks like, Broccoli, like, you didn't have to have Hank be the guy with, like, the very grave, like, Scott, we gotta talk about what's happening now. And like, no, you can let Janet do that, and you can let Hank Pym just be kind of, like, amazed by all of these sides of the quantum realm that he didn't know existed. I, I liked that about it. The Quantum Realm itself also as always looked great. I love the trip that the group took into it. It was really well designed, really well executed. I think that the different settings inside the Quantum Realm were very unique and very singular and I like that this franchise really has a look to it that's unlike anything else in the MCU. The Probability Storm sequence, the Multiple Scots, I thought that that was really funny and I liked how that was written and acted by Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd should get a lot of credit because he had to act all of those different versions of himself and I also like the resolution to that sequence, which is that, you know, it's chaos until they learn that they're there to help Cassie, and then all of the Scots uh, team together like a team of ants to help achieve this objective because that's the one thing that they all share in common. That is a great combination of action and story. You can marry a character motivation to a great set piece. And it's something that I think this movie needed a little bit more of. And it's the reason why I think that sequence does work so well is because it is story-centered, character-centered, action-centered. You get all three equally. And I thought it was a really engaging, entertaining part of the film. I think it is funny when we talk about the quantum realm that they use the concept of time dilation Uh, to their advantage when they want to and they kind of ignore it when it's inconvenient. Time dilation being the fact that you're in the quantum realm and time passes differently outside of the quantum realm. It's a whole thing. If you've seen Interstellar, time dilation is a big part of that plot. And there seem to be like pockets of time dilation in the quantum realm. Like when Janet was in the quantum realm and she was stranded there for 30 years, uh, time passed the same for her inside the quantum realm as it did for everybody else outside the quantum realm. I guess because she's in this part that's outside of time and space. But when Scott was trapped in the quantum realm, time dilation was in effect, so that for Avengers Endgame, five years could pass and then he could pop out and not know what happened because it didn't feel like five years had passed for him. Sorry, that must have been a very long five years. Yeah, but that's just it, it wasn't. For me, it was five hours. Uh, But then in this movie, time dilation is not happening, except the ants did fall into a part of the quantum realm uh, where time dilation happened because they lived like thousands of years and built this huge society and could come and save everybody at the end of the movie. Time dilation is a really fascinating thing about gravity and everything else. I mean, scientifically, it's, it's an actual thing, but it really does seem at this point like the Marvel movies are kind of using it as a plot device to do what they need it to do when they need it to do it. Not that this is probably all scientifically sound to begin with, I don't really know how accurate to the real quantum realm this movie is. But I feel like it was basically used two different ways in this movie and really mainly only brought up to bring in the army of ants at the beginning, the deus ant machina as I wrote in my notes. And that's a real deus ex machina. I know that people use that term a lot and I think it's sort of overused in modern film discourse a deus ex machina is exactly what you saw in this movie which is that our heroes are in an impossible situation and then from the skies literally comes the solution to their problems but i do have to say uh, kudos even using time dilation etc I did not expect actual ants to be in any way a solution to the problem in this film. So kudos to the creative team, Jeff Loveness, Peyton Reed, Kevin Feigetron, everybody else at Marvel, who actually figured out a way to have ants play an integral role in this movie, because I did not see that coming. There was a time element that I wish had been used a little bit more, and it's actually one that was teased in the last batch of trailers and TV spots for the movie that I think would have been a much more compelling plot element, which is the idea that Scott is tempted to work with Kang because Kang can give him back those years that he missed with Cassie. I'm the man who can give you the one thing you want. What's that? Time. Going into it, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting because Scott's gonna be so conflicted by that because, of course, he wants those years back, but what does he sacrifice and what's the deal that's being made? But that was sort of a fabricated plot line that was basically used to sell the film. That is initially what Kang offers, and then Scott says, no, I'm not gonna do it, and then it kind of becomes the more cliche villain thing of just like, well, then I'm going to kill your daughter if you don't do this for me, and it's much more straightforward. I actually would have liked... A deeper look at that where maybe Scott does take that deal where he says you know what if you promise that you're not going to touch my world I-, I love my daughter so much that I want those years back so I'm you know I- I'm going to help you get what you want or or Kane kind of tricks him in a way that he tricked Janet to help him build that power core in the first place where he promises that time with his daughter back and Scott helps and then Kane kind of reveals who and what he is I would have preferred a much deeper look at that because I think it speaks a lot deeper to Scott's character. And I think if you would have explored that element of the story more, then this would have felt a little bit more personal to Ant-Man. It's one of my other criticisms for the movie is you touch on little character pieces that are follow-ups to the stories of these characters, but it is mostly... Marvel movie, the movie, and getting us down the road a little bit more. Again, when we go to the script level, I think that's where a lot of my issues are. I think you could have tweaked that and made it not quite as generically bad guy is going to kill your husband, daughter, wife, etc. That we've seen in 10 trillion movies before. In general, when we talk about Scott's character, I mean, he is Ant-Man. He's half of the title. I think that they started out with some really interesting places for him. Uh, Number one, he's not actively fighting crime anymore and he's kind of sitting on his laurels, perhaps a little bit full of himself that he saved the world. Number two, he is living a life that is completely insulated from the consequences of the blip. And even though, yes, he saved the world, Also, that indirectly resulted in a huge amount of human suffering, and it's what Cassie has really tapped into, and I thought that was very interesting. And then also the idea that he is kind of living this life of extraordinary privilege and and fame, etc., in the wake of all of this human suffering. And does he feel guilt over that? Is he going to reckon with that? These were all themes that I thought were interesting set up in basically the first 10 to 15 minutes of the movie. But none of that's really developed. You have a little bit of a debate between Scott and Cassie at the beginning and then the family dinner. And then when they're talking about helping the freedom fighters, Cassie kind of brings up the idea like, well, if it doesn't directly affect you, then you don't want to help. And they talk about it a little bit, but that's pretty much the last that it's brought up. And again, I know that it's tough to do in a Kang story where you're down in the quantum realm and you know the huge fights, etc. But I thought that they had some very interesting threads and it kind of makes me wonder what the original version of this script looked like and what they may have actually done with Scott's character if it had been a real true Ant-Man and the Wasp movie. There was also a moment that I think was missed and it's because they already used it in a previous Marvel movie that I think would have been much better in this movie, which is that in that Kang-Scott final throwdown, which I thought was just a brawler of a fight, I I loved that scene. Of Of all the CGI armies, my favorite fight in that movie was the two of them just having like a physical and mental battle to see who was going to come out on top. Scott keeps getting up, and Kang keeps coming after him, and it would have been so great, I think, if Scott had said, I could do this all day because he worships captain america we know that people know he said that because that was the name of the song in that rogers the musical in hawkeye and it would have been so great if at one point he had just gotten up and king was like you know you know aren't you going to give up or like i've destroyed millions of you know universes like you know do you not understand that you can never beat me and scott says i could do this all day you know something like you know i learned this from a friend Maybe that seems cheesy to some, but I think that would have been great and speaks much more to the direct connection that Scott and Cap had and also just kind of keeps alive the legacy and the spirit of the Chris Evans, Steve Rogers, Captain America that I don't think we're going to see anymore in the MCU, but... They already used that with Peggy Carter in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which I, I think was, you know, kind of fun, but less emotionally meaningful. It was just kind of like another variant of Captain America saying his line. Haven't you read enough? Oh, I could do this all day. I wish that they had saved it for this movie because I would have loved for Scott to have said it because of that love he has for Captain America. The only things that really didn't work for me were the opening and the ending of the movie, this sort of VO-based stuff where he's reading from his book and then the end where he's doing the VO thing again and it goes into this existential crisis, which is interesting, but I, I just don't think the movie handled it quite the right way. And then the cake joke at the end cutting to credits on that. It just was kind of a of a joke. I just didn't think it was that funny. I wonder how much of that was reshoots. You know, Marvel movies do a lot of reshoots. I wonder if they were just like, I feel like we need to add a framing device here, and we'll do it as VO, etc. Or how much of it was just like, well, you know, we just have to establish a lot of stuff right off the bat. But the beginning and the ending of the movie didn't really work that well for me, which, you know, is not a great way to start and not a great way to end. But overall, I think Paul Rudd is great. I mean, I love his take on the character. I thought he was funny. I like Scott Lang, I like this version of Ant-Man. The moment where they're doing the drink the goo scene and Scott is silently counting his holes and he's like, yeah, 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 that's right. That is really what Paul Rudd can bring to this character. And I think he got the emotionality right. He got the physicality right. He's really, really solid in this role. And I can't really fault him for anything that the movie has done. Uh, You know, he's perhaps overshadowed by Jonathan Majors, but that happens all the time with villains. So, you know, I don't really think that you have an Ant-Man problem in this movie, at least as far as Paul Rudd, or his characterization, or his acting. Of course, another huge part of the movie is not the wasp. I feel a little bad for Evangeline Lilly. I mean, she is in the movie and she's part of the action scenes, but I don't really feel like her character had a whole lot to do other than just kind of flying around and being the wasp. A lot of that development went to Cassie, who has a hugely enhanced role here, and Catherine Newton playing Cassie for the first time. And I've got to say, the STEM programs in the MCU really are fantastic because this universe is just packed with teenage super geniuses. You can't throw a rock without hitting one. And I thought that Catherine Newton was fine as Cassie. I just don't think the movies really did her any favors because they gave her the most predictable MCU storyline, which is I'm going to get super into science and then I'm going to get a super suit and I'm going to become another version of a hero that we already have two of. And to boot, all of that really happened off screen. It's basically like, we haven't seen Cassie for five years. We come back and she loves science and she has a suit. And she pretty much knows how to do Ant-Man stuff except for how to punch, but we get a brief tutorial from Scott. And by the end of the movie, she can pretty much do everything that Scott can do. Again, there's so much more there that you could do as far as developing Cassie as a character. Take a breath and let the daughter and the father bond over this and let her get more tips from Scott about how to do all these Ant-Man wasp type things. And I think that the movie kind of flies over all of that because it's like listen we've got a lot of story to tell we don't have time to waste on this but like those are the character moments like that's what makes you like these characters it's not just that they can do these things it's the acquisition of that that was one of the great parts about the first Ant-Man movie was Scott learning how to do the Ant-Man stuff it was funny you understood how he learned you saw the pitfalls it set up some plot stuff for later and I wish that the movie had spared a little time for that in this film because with Cassie it always just like oh no she just knows how to do it It's just not very interesting from a story level. I do have to say, and I know that she's very young, she's just a new superhero, and also fairly new at the science stuff, that Cassie took a very big risk at the end of this movie because they all go through this portal, and then the portal closes, and on the other side of that portal, Ant-Man and Wasp are having a fight, but I'm not quite sure they could really see what was going on in there, because Cassie immediately opens the portal back to bring Scott and Hope back into the world. But she's really lucky that Scott and Hope actually did win that fight, because otherwise Kang just goes, ha ha, and jumps through, and then the whole movie really was for nothing. So good move on her part, obviously saving Scott and Hope, but a calculated risk that paid off. I I do have to say I was a little bit bummed out because when that portal closed and Scott and Hope are there in the quantum realm, kind of in the wake of this destruction, I was like, wow, that's an interesting story beat. Scott and Hope are now down in the quantum realm. They're going to have to figure out how to get back, or maybe they go back to get them, or maybe they try to build a little world down here. They're leading the Kang resistance from the quantum realm. And then like that problem is just immediately solved. I was like, oh, no." I was kind of interested in that story. So let's talk about MODOK. And there are two facts associated with MODOK that I think are awesome on their own. Number one, I think it's really cool that we live in a Marvel Cinematic Universe where you can bring MODOK into one of the biggest Marvel films and people just accept it and they're actually rooting for it. Like you have you have penetrated the consciousness of the moviegoer mind enough that they will accept MODOK showing up in a movie. Number two, I'm actually glad that they figured out a way to get Corey Stoll back involved in the franchise because I like the character of Darren Cross, I like Corey Stoll as an actor, and more Corey Stoll is never a bad thing. However, my main question is, should these two things have been combined? I love the design of MODOK. The armor design looked really great, but when you have the reveal of Darren, first of all, it was very distracting for me because the way they designed it, the face didn't look at all like Corey Stoll. And I actually, the first time I saw the movie was, Really distracted because I was trying to figure out did they have to recast the part Were they not able to get Corey Stoll Did they just use the archive footage and this is a different actor like I understand the intention there is to like Redesign his head because it's all been so warped by the quantum realm and it's this kind of grotesque thing but I think they went too far because he was completely unrecognizable and it made it feel like they were kind of doing a back to the future 2 thing where they couldn't get Corey Stoll so they just kind of you know squidged it a little bit so that you don't really notice that it's not him so that's just kind of a design issue now having Darren Cross be Modoc makes sense in the sense that, you know, we know that he got pulled somewhere into the quantum realm. The whole disfigurement thing, sure, I'll go with that. It also makes sense that he's gonna be the one to pull them into the quantum realm because he's got the technology, he's got the vendetta against everyone in the Lang slash atmosphere. So that makes sense from a story standpoint. I don't really have any qualms with that. And the humor with MODOK, a lot of it really worked. The death scene in particular, I thought was very funny in that interaction between them. But the question I really have to ask though was, was this a waste of MODOK? Were you sort of selling out the long-term potential of MODOK in order for the short-term gain of bringing Corey Stoll and Darren Cross back into this movie? And I think a lot of it may be that MODOK's whole arc or story or whatever kind of felt like an afterthought because he was this big, bad villain. I wish that they'd gone more into how he's mistreated by Kang because that would have been a very believable reason for him to turn on Kang at the end, but they don't really go into that. Instead, it all seems to happen with like one interaction with Cassie where she just says, is like don't be a dick you don't have to be a dick and he's like I don't have to be a dick then I'm not gonna be one anymore and then he's like the big hero who comes in and helps save the day and it seems so rushed and it kind of goes back to every other note that I've had about the characterization and stuff in this movie which is that they didn't really take the time to work on the characters themselves because there were so many things happening but for me at least I'm as invested in the things as I am the characters and so I want them to both have equal importance. It's kind of a double-edged sword because, like I said, I like the character, I like bringing Darren Cross back, I thought it was a creative way to do it, but I also think that MODOK has kind of been used as like a one-off henchman type with a rushed arc, and I think that you could have done better, although this is a comic book movie, and like everything else, perhaps we have not seen the last of MODOK, who knows. I had a similar feeling with Bill Murray's Krylar. I thought he was great. He had a little bit of playfulness, some menace, some anger, right under the surface. He didn't show up just to be Bill Murray. He actually was giving a performance. But was this the part in the MCU for Bill Murray or did we just kind of use him once in a movie and then not again because we wanted that short-term impact of like, hey, Bill Murray's in the new Ant-Man movie. Now I was paying attention in the background and it looked like he wasn't specifically eaten by that big creature. So I guess there's a chance he could come back. But Kryler didn't really have the biggest importance to this specific story. He was like the guy in act three of a Law and Order SVU episode who kind of points the detective is in the right direction, but, you know, doesn't have a huge consequence as far as the ultimate story goes. He does provide some background to Janet and her dealings in the quantum realm, but also, like, this revelation that they apparently had a whole thing there and that Janet, you know, wasn't faithful to Hank. I mean, I know that she had no reason to believe that she was ever gonna get back. And Hank mentioned, well, you know, I had a thing with the, somebody too while you were gone. So, you know, it's a two-way street, but that kind of de-romanticizes the relationship a little bit for me. Like, I, I I, don't know, I'm just a romantic guy, so I like the idea of these two, you know, married people pining for each other across the realms and across the decades, and then they're reunited. And then you find out that like, nah, she was thrown down with Bill Murray while she was out there. It's like, yeah, okay, that, that's fine, whatever. Again, it's really all just a case of the performance was great, I liked Bill Murray in the movie. I laughed at a lot of the humor and I thought that he was really good, but in service of what and could you have used that character more effectively or efficiently? I think it was also notable for some characters that didn't return and I know that Hollywood schedules are really tough to balance, but I miss some of the people from the previous Ant-Man films. Judy Greer, for example, I think should have at least had a scene when you're talking about Cassie and the fact that she's sort of rebelling and going out and getting thrown in jail. I would have loved at least one showdown scene where she's like, could you not give our teenage daughter a super suit? And then Scott goes back it says, like, you gave her a suit. Like, I think that she could have had a role to play in this movie. Randall Park, he's a busy man, but I would have hoped for more than one shot of Wu. Uh, I thought that his interaction with Scott was so great in the last film. And then, of course, we lose T.I., David Desmalchian, and Michael Pena as Dave, Kurt, and Luis. Dasmalchian at least was there as the voice of Veb, who I think had some really funny moments. But this movie just didn't feel like an Ant-Man movie without Luis. And it kind of goes back to my main criticism here, which is that it seems like there were so many things that were cut, character moments, etc., in order to make room for so many other things to do, Kang and the Freedom Fighters and everything else, that it doesn't feel as much like an Ant-Man movie. It feels like they got rid of the Ant-Man things, and it was really more like insert X marvel character here, because you have to get a little bit further down the road. And this has been my complaint with Disney for a while now. And I think they're losing what makes these movies feel so special. It's not just that they're comic book movies is not just that they're in these big expansive universes there's a lot of movies like that it's these characters that people love. And it's the characters that had people coming back to the MCU for 15 years now. And with Kevin Feige saying they're going to take more time with projects now, the Marvels was delayed today actually from coming out this summer to coming out in November, I hope that they really take a second look at the character part of what they're doing. Because it's not just that they're Marvel movies, it goes a long way, but we really need characters to connect to, and I feel like so much of that was cut out of this movie in order to do more stuff. And really talking about the story of the movie I felt that struggle a little bit even in the structure of the film. I mentioned that the VO at the beginning of the end was a bit rushed or maybe was put there in post production to help kind of massage the beginning and end of the movie I don't really know the story there. But there was one scene or or two scenes in particular that kind of drives home what I'm thinking about. And I bumped on it both times that I watched it. And it's the scene where Scott and Cassie are in the Freedom Fighter camp and it's the drink the goo scene. And they tell Scott to drink the goo and then it cuts away to Janet in the desert part of the quantum realm where she like meets the creature and he beams down the quantum Mothra thing so that they can fly around. And then it comes back to Scott and Cassie in the drink the goose scene, but it picks up exactly pretty much where we left off before we cut away to Janet. And when we're talking about film editing, generally, if you cut away from a scene, it means either that you're making a jump in time uh, so that you're skipping over something that happened, or you're showing some kind of a contemporaneous action that's somehow going to tie in to the scene that you're cutting away from. But to basically cut away in the middle of a scene to show something else and come back in the middle of that same scene, that to me shows a little bit of a struggle on the editorial side. Like you've got all these scenes and you're trying to figure out where they fit and it doesn't fit here and it doesn't fit here. It's like, well, we got to put this scene here because we cut that scene. And so it just felt like an awkward fit. And this isn't a thing that probably a lot of people notice or care about, but as an editor, which is kind of where my roots are, I'm keyed into those things, and I noticed it both times, and actually Mara, who wasn't able to see it with me the first time, but saw it with me the second time, she also mentioned it, I didn't even say a word about it, but she also mentioned it, so I do think it's something that a lot of people are noticing, but I think that that is sort of an indicator that there was a struggle with how to structure this story, and I think it all means that you need to go, as Norman Osborne would say, back to formula, and figure out this story from the ground up. Maybe they didn't have the time, maybe they had a different idea, maybe it was reshoots, maybe it was people saying you got to put all this stuff in, something with the story here wasn't quite right and it kind of made the whole movie feel a little bit flat. So in general, and as I said in my non-spoiler view, I liked a lot of individual elements of the movie, but I I didn't think that it really came together very well as a whole. And I also don't really know where it leaves us in the MCU. And I would think the hope for Marvel would would be that the big Phase 5 kickoff movie would have everybody buzzing about what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. I don't know if that's the case. I was in about a half-full theater last night. It was a 6 o'clock showing, I think. And, you know, people laughed where they were supposed to laugh generally. But when the movie was over, there really wasn't much discussion or buzz or talk. People just kind of silently filed out of the IMAX and walked out of the movie theater, and that was it. And I've been in Marvel movies, in that very theater, where it's much more animated. And you get applause, and you walk outside in the lobby, and people are talking about this and that and that moment. And I just didn't see that. I'm not saying that's every audience. But I do wonder, you know, I'm not saying that a lot of people are going to say this is their least favorite Marvel movie. And I do think that the critical score is a little bit harsh as an indicator of A, what actual critical sentiment is, and in my estimation, the quality of the movie. I think that a lot of critics were harsher on it than I certainly was, but I also don't know how many people are going to list this as one of their favorite Marvel movies, and I think it speaks to an overall larger struggle that Marvel is having. Post-Endgame, I would say that Marvel's really only made one or two things that I just flat out don't like, just didn't care for, not for me. But they also have only made maybe two or three things that I loved that I'm just like, I love this. This was great. I can't wait to see more. I, you know, my criticisms are minor. This was fantastic. And right in the middle of those one or two things that I didn't like, and two or three things that I loved is this kind of congealed mess of Marvel that I really just kind of feel, eh about all of it and I think that over time that really kills enthusiasm. It certainly kills my enthusiasm for the MCU because you're not gonna hit on every single project but I can't remember a stretch like this where there's so many consecutive Marvel projects where I walk out of the movie with almost the same opinion which is like, well I really like this part of it, this part of this part of it, and the rest of this is kinda fine. And Quantumania didn't really do a whole lot to break out of that because a lot of it were the same kind of tropes that we've seen. The thing that you gotta get for the bad guy that he really needs but then you got to keep it away from the bad guy the MacGuffin if you will or the bad guy who's holding someone in the hero's family hostage so you have to help him, or the idea of we're gonna reach out to a bunch of rebels and we don't think they're gonna show up but then at the very end they show up and they help to win the day I mean that's basically the end of the rise of Skywalker they use that beat in this movie and listen these are all well-worn tropes they've been done in movies thousands and thousands and thousands of times it's what you do with those tropes and the movie didn't really do much with them but you contrast that to for example the big hug reunion between Scott and Cassie at the end of the movie, it worked well in this movie because we've seen that scene so many times before where a father and a daughter reunite with a big tearful hug but it works in this movie because both Scott and Cassie in that moment are giant and so they hug and reunite but then they get to talk about how they're craving citrus and that's a way that you can use a trope that's been used in a movie so many different times before but make it specific to that movie and specific to those characters so that it works and I thought that that was a really good scene. But they weren't able to do that often enough, and they didn't customize this movie enough to make it a good Ant-Man and the Wasp movie, and not just a generic Marvel film, for it to really stand out. And I think that what the MCU has going right now is a pattern of high achieving mediocrity, which like I said really dampens my enthusiasm for the universe as a whole. I hope going forward that they can go back to the drawing board and really come up with some plans for a vibrant. MCU again and I know that some people say like well, it's never been a vibrant MCU Maybe not to you, but to me it felt like for a while there when they were in their heydays their glory days You were making movies that were part of the bigger picture, but each movie had its own specific identity its own distinct feel, characters that you cared about, well-established characters that you cared about, who had their own stories inside of these bigger projects that were part of a bigger picture. And I just think Marvel, somewhere along the way, either because they're making too many things or because they're kind of overambitious in their plans, they've lost that mojo a little bit. And I really do hope that they get it back because a vibrant MCU is obviously good for Marvel fans, and I count myself as one of them who just loves seeing good Marvel movies. It's good for the theatrical exhibition business because it gets more people in theaters, just something that's desperately needed right now. But I don't think that's what we have in this moment, and that's really, to me, what made Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania a somewhat enjoyable movie, but not something I'm really that excited about. So those are my long spoiler thoughts on Ant-Man and the Wasp: Quantumania. What do you think? Have you seen the movie? Do you disagree with me? Do you agree more with the tomato meter, if not the individual critics themselves? Let me know in the comments down below. And as always, thank you so much for watching me here on the channel. I'll be back very soon with more movie news, reviews, box office awards, and more. Until then, stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Bye.